We're gonna talk about comics from Devil's Due. Hey, Mark here, interrupting the regular jingle to announce that with the end of the first era of Devil's Due, with issue 43 and the end of the Brandon Jewa era, we're starting a brand new Devil's Due era of America's Elite. And with it comes a brand new jingle. Play that, VT. Live from the Talking Joe Studios, it's Talking Joe. G.I. Joe, the very best, America's elite. Elite than all the rest, trained to have no flaws. Defending liberty across the land. Valor oversized Bring out that big brass band Real heroes verified Gotta read them all You must agree Elitist in history Oh there can be no end In a world we must defend Gotta read them all A courageous crew their colors red, white, and blue. Mess with them and they'll shoot you. G.I. Joe. Gotta read them all. Gotta read them all. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. It's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. Now, if you are new to the show, you can find out all of the details at the website talkingjoe.co.uk from there you can join our facebook you can like our youtubes you can follow our instagrams and all of that good stuff now uh, today we are continuing our look at the disavowed era of gi joe with gi joe america's elite issue zero the newest war This was from Devil's Due, June 2005, and followed hot on the heels of the end of the last Brandon Joe issue and uh, the first series from uh, Devil's Due slash Image. This is the first issue of the Joe Casey run, which runs up to issue 18. So a fairly significant run of issues. Now, before we get too far into it, let me introduce an American elite co-host. It's a real American, Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. How you doing, Tim? I am good, and I am excited to talk about this uh, Devil's Do relaunch because I was on board. I had uh, started the original Devil's Do comic with its first issue in 2001. I stayed for about 10 issues. I checked back in for issue 21 and 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 I did not come back. But when this new series was announced, um, the fact that it was uh, a, a new start with a different writer and a different artist were both interesting to me because from what I knew and saw, I didn't love the writing and art in the previous Devil's Do G.I. Joe comic. And... Um, uh, very specifically, I was a Joe Casey fan. I uh-huh. had I had read some of his uh, Uncanny X Men. I very much liked 
his Wildcats, and I still very much like his Wildcats. Uh, if if all you know about Wildcats, listeners, is <laughs> you know that's what Jim Lee launched at Image. Uh, the story of Wildcats is that uh, Jim Lee and his childhood buddy wrote the comic for the first year, and then Chris Claremont did a couple issues. James Robinson did a couple issues. Alan Moore did a really great run for uh, a year or two that was mired by a little inconsistent art. It had some excellent art and some okay art. And uh, then I sort of don't pay attention to that book for like 20 issues until it ends. When Wildcats relaunches uh, as volume two, (laughs) we're almost there. Scott Lobdell writes the first arc, which is uh, fine, but not exciting, although uh, really, really good art. And then uh, for its uh, second and third and fourth arcs, the volume two Wildcats is so great. Joe Casey uh, and Sean Phillips turn it into this excellent just other book. And then it ends and starts again as Wildcats version three, right? Which is their fancy name for volume three, but it's in the title. And Joe Casey writes that for two years and Dustin Wynn draws it. And Joe Casey also wrote The Intimates uh, at uh, for, for Wildstorm for Jim Lee, which no one remembers. And that was good and has a little bit of a coda of this Wildcats run. So um, that a writer who had been doing something that was so exciting and this word gets overused. So I I say this sort of lightly, but uh, edgy, um, maybe a better word is sort of that right combination of new and old, right? So experimental, but familiar. And also that Wildcats run um, was a mature reader's title. And so to have someone like him, on G.I. Joe, particularly after I hadn't loved any of the writing previously at Devil's Do, was exciting. And then uh, Stefano Caselli on art. Oh, man, this was this was doubly exciting. I was a little apprehensive because Joe Casey was not Larry Hama. And once again, in 2005, I thought, okay. Devil's Do, you've got your second chance, your third chance. Hire Larry Hama to write this book. And uh, and that didn't happen. And so I'm going to compare any writing on a G.I. Joe book to Larry Hama. And I don't want to be in a position, you know, if it's Blaylock or Jurwa, I can say, well, they're not, they're not Hama. I don't like their stuff. Hama would have been better. It's a little harder when it's Joe Casey because I liked his stuff. That's not G.I. Joe. And if he does a bad G.I. Joe, then I'm going to have these negative feelings about some of his writing. So I was I was all on board. How well can you remember America's Elite is my question number one. And then how long were you on board for it? Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So <laughs> issue zero and issue one were so exciting in terms of art and color and I think five pages into issue one, I thought, oh, this guy's not sticking around. This guy is either 
not fast enough to keep up with a monthly book, or Devil's Due is going to mess this up and move him onto something more important, or he will get higher profile work at another publisher. And so when Caselli, he draws uh, issue two and three and four and I forget, somewhere around five, six, seven, eight, he he misses an issue or two and then he's gone. And uh, I think my final issue is is nine. So I did not finish America's Elite, much less the Joe Casey run. And mm. so in terms of how well do I remember it, um, I don't I basically don't remember it, it at all. When I think of America's Elite, I think of two things. Uh, I think of three things. I think of the logo, which is the, the G.I. Joe logo type with his added black horizontal under it. And it says America's Elite with an exclamation mark and two stars, one on either side in this serif font. Because it's a diff- it's a slightly different treatment than every other G.I. Joe logo. You know, like G.I. Joe Special Missions at Marvel, the words Special Missions have a similar treatment to the word G.I. Joe, but, you know, not here. All right, so the two main things I think of when I think of uh, America's Elite. One, I think of the cover to issue number one and how much attitude is oozing out of those, is it five Joes who are on the cover? One, two, three, four, five, six, right? And the third thing I think of is really a corollary of that second thing. I think of Caselli's furrowed brows. <laughs> and I already commented on this in a previous episode when we were, right, when we were talking about Master and Apprentice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Caselli, it's, it's really cool, but it goes so far, it's a little distracting. Everyone Caselli draws is... <laughs> is like a very hot um like gap clothing perfume magazine model and they are looking at you with like like big pouty lips and they are like frowning and like staring at you and they are intense and that's really cool because it reminds me of uh, the John Buscema, Stan Lee note from the book How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way, which is that you exaggerate, right? And there's this great two-page sequence. It's six panels each where um, a sequence of events happens and everything's sort of tepidly straight up, down, left, right. And then Buscema draws it a second time where he tilts the camera and has all the characters exaggerate their poses. And Stan Lee makes the point in his in his copy that in Marvel comics, you exaggerate everything. And, you know, where I found a lot of the artwork and poses and action sort of light and thin and tepid in, in a lot of devils do GI Joe comics up to this point. Um, Caselli is just, you know, everyone is like giving you the side eye, like looking down at you. Everyone is furrowing their brow and it's totally awesome. And, a little distracting. <laughs> I guess um, your jumping off point was also the same point that, that Caselli le- leaves the book. So so was it that, I guess, you, th- that you were hanging around for his art because it was 
so exciting and yeah, you thought yeah. that perhaps the the story components weren't strong enough to make you hang around once once they lost the artist just to go back a half step um if this is criticism that i mean i'm you know i'm i'm saying this in a way that our audience might chuckle um i think caselli draws really good comics and uh, all of his uh what's he been drawing for the x-men office recently did he do some of did he start x-men red uh he did some of uh was it the excalibur was it a, did he do he was he did some of excalibur uh in the dawn of x relaunch i forget um i i think he's i think he's great i, I like his stuff a lot and i would much rather he draw these um really intense faces and eyes than not i would much rather everyone be turned up all the way than <laughs> not turned up at all or not turned up enough and and there's a lot of variety in his facial acting. So I'm not trying to say that he draws a one-note face. What I am saying is that everyone has this added layer of Stefano Caselli eyeball and eyebrow sort of tension, which is just a part of his style and a part of his acting. Uh, you know, I used to think that um, Barry Windsor Smith, the first like 20 things I ever saw Barry, Barry Windsor Smith draw when I was getting into comics in 89, 90, and 91. It was a couple X-Men covers, New Mutants covers, a little bit of work for Valiant. And I thought that Barry Windsor Smith always drew people a little glass-eyed. Like they were always sort of staring a little bit out of focus into the middle distance. And, you know, Barry Windsor Smith stuff is incredible so as a criticism that is that is the only thing that i have ever found to be slightly you know not wonderful about barry windsor smith's art and i've also now seen enough of it that what i saw in a few covers was the vast minority of his work so again i don't mean to, i'm not taking a swipe at caselli he he has a stylistic tick that i think is fun and funny but yes, to your to your other point just now, um, I like the story. It it sort of felt to me like I was giving Devils Due a second chance, and they had to get all three things right: story and art and color. And I wasn't interested in two of those or one of those. And so I don't remember very specifically if around issue eight I thought, "Huh, this story is still great." But I don't like this new artist. I don't know that it was that uh, specific. And uh, my pal continued to read the book all the way through and sometimes said he liked it and sometimes said it was only okay. But I think it's sort of like I liked Joe Casey's writing for the first several issues. But since I didn't have a big emotional connection, I wasn't going to stick around to see how I felt. If it had been, let's say, Larry Hama writing America's Elite and an artist I was less excited about shows up for the second year, I absolutely would have stuck around. I guess to hover over thought as well, the the, the reason that we had the relaunch with a new issue uh, zero, well, an issue one, but also an accompanying issue zero and a new um, a writer and artist team was was to kind of get those, you know, generate the excitement and get new readers on, including potentially lapsed readers so um in terms of you as one of the target audience members there tim that that they to some degree they 
they did have a a, a, a modicum of success. Blaylock mentions in one of his interviews at the time um, an interesting point, which was that it, I guess that he preferred that he, if he didn't have to relaunch with a new numbering all that kind of stuff, but it's kind of the ask of the, the industry to to get that sort of level of excitement, get the bump in in numbers. And he's, he pointed to uh, even the most successful comics like Batman, which had sort of recently had a sort of soft relaunch with Hush um, and Jim Lee on the on the title, and and you know Batman being an A list title, even even that can sometimes wane a little bit and uh, and have a bump from just a change in team. Yeah, there is a larger issue here. I mean, Batman is such a cultural force that it feels like after 1989, after that first movie by Tim Burton. There is no world in which Batman should have sliding sales and you know editorial feels like they should have to do something major to shake it up and get attention. But uh, you know, the comics industry, Marvel and DC and Image mostly in the late 80s and 90s started publishing all of these books and events and gimmicks and making story decisions that rewarded short-term bumps over long-term growth. So, you know, 15 years later, something like G.I. Joe, a mid-list book or a lower list book, uh, is also going to get caught up on that in a much bigger way. You know, Batman's probably always going to be okay. Uh, G.I. Joe's not always going to be okay. And, you know, we see that kind of thing to this day. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting at my uh, computer looking at some comics I brought home to read this week from my store, including Green, Air, uh, Green Lantern number one from this week and Green Arrow number one from a week or two ago. And, you know, these characters have had TV shows and movies. And I feel like, no, those should be like Amazing Spider-Man. They should just run for 40 years and you don't have to you know, new writers, new artists, but you shouldn't have to start them at over one, over at number one, but you do. Okay, so this book was coming to us. We're talking about America's Elite Issue Zero, by the way, guys. <laughs> uh, this issue, this was coming to us from the creative team of uh, writer Joe Casey, pencils Stefano Caselli, inks Andrew Pepoy, colors Sundar Raj, lettering Steve Seeley, edited by Mark powers and associate editor mike o'sullivan so we've talked quite a bit about stefano caselli previously uh in our master and apprentice episode so just to note that, that he was joining this book uh, following on from work on master and apprentice aftermaths defects and uh hash hack slash so very much still the rising star joe casey we've also talked about Interestingly, from uh, Yojo's interview at the time uh, with Blaylock, they asked why why is he on on the book, and they made a they took a, a quote of something that Casey had said about eighties properties. He said, "Now, can someone help me out here? Transformers, GI Joe, Battle of the Planets, Thundercats, He Man. What decade is this industry living in? Last I checked, it was the twenty first century, and these are cutting edge books tearing up the sales charts." I don't mind seeing the massive X machine starting to recede a little bit into the background, sliding down the charts to make way for a crop of new champs. 
But if they're just making way for 80s cartoon nostalgia, I may have to think my concept of lesser evils. And and Blaylock's response was a little bit of surprise, but, but he said it was really, he was given the book on the, it was in large part to the scripts that he'd handed in for Infantry from Devil's Due, written for the Aftermath line. And then also say, you know, had a lot of success in Wildcats, uh, X-Men. And I think Blaylock was really looking for kind of a fresh pair of eyes on on this. He says uh, that part of the new direction was to make the book more accessible to writers who don't know everything about G.I. Joe in infinite detail, but can still tell great stories. And he gave the example of Cobra Reborn, which was written by Paul Jenkins, um, it was hailed as one of the the best Cobra Commander stories written to date and really, really nailed the character. But before the gig, Paul knew nothing about G.I. Joe and everything was based on simple notes that he had been provided about the essence of the character and using that as a springboard to create an amazing story with it. So basically having a, a smaller team to, to uh, and not too much baggage and backstory that uh, a new writer such as Casey or potentially other uh, subsequent writers uh, dipping into their toes into this pool could uh, could pick it up. There's two other, there are two unspoken elements in what you just said. In addition to someone like Joe Casey, who, uh, who has fresh eyes on the property, Joe Casey had some heat. And I think I was implying that with my long description of his yes. some of his writing career before that, but I didn't actually say it, so I want to say it. Joe Casey had some heat. His his writing was considered cool. He was considered cool. And so him on G.I. Joe is a get. Number two, Wizard Magazine. In that list of books that in the yojo.com interview is being uh, quoted back to Blaylock for context, yes, books like G.I. Joe and Transformers and Battle of Planets are burning up the charts. And uh, I'm a biased witness here. I think G.I. Joe and Transformers should burn up the charts when they come back 10 or 15 years later as nostalgia properties. I don't think Battle of the Planets should. I'm not being mean to Battle of the Planets fans. There just weren't as many of them. And there was very little Battle of the Planets stuff in the intervening years out there for fans. There had been a lot of G.I. Joe and Transformers stuff, even if the properties had receded. And you get one of the image houses, Top Cow, and some Alex Ross covers on Battle of the Planets, and a small spike in attention because I guess there was a home video release somewhere around there, or maybe it came back to television. But Wizard Magazine starts telling all of these 13 and 23-year-olds that Battle of the Planets is really cool and Alex Ross <laughs> covers her hot. And so, uh, you know, a little bit of context there. I think they're both right. I think Joe Casey can sort of roll his eyes before he takes on G.I. Joe that this nostalgia boom is too much or a little puzzling and that Blaylock nicely pushes back that it's it's not that those aren't those books don't deserve to sell well. It's that there were a lot of them all at once. You know, it's like... Dreamwave wasn't publishing one Transformers comic. They were publishing three or four, etc. I also had a quote from Joe Casey about coming to this book and what sort of baggage about G.I. Joe did he bring with him. So he says, 
The truth is, I was one generation removed from G.I. Joe. I was slightly too old to really get into it. I'd watched the original five-part animated series when it first aired. It ran one episode per day for a week. I liked it a lot, but for whatever reason, I never really watched the series after that. And I never really read the comics, aside from an, a random issue here and there. Though elsewhere, he, he notes that uh, he had a good friend who was into G.I. Joe and he vicariously sort of had some exposure via, via that. Uh, so he continues. So there was no nostalgia for me. I think that actually helped since I could look at the franchise with a fresh pair of eyes and pick out what might work best dramatically. I made sure the cast was small enough to function as a team or more specifically, a family. The idea of writing an expansive army of characters, as Joe could be if you're willing to include everyone on the roster, was not going to work for me. We should point out we should point out this interview is by Andy Burns. It's looking back from 2013 and it's at biffbampop.com. Thank you, Tim, for the crediting. Good stuff. And and part, I mean part of, part of the last few issues of the of the previous series was kind of lining this up and doing having a slimmer team and and I think that was part of the thinking that organically maybe some of that storytelling in the last series wouldn't necessarily have happened but but it sort of helped to kind of try and set up this smaller GI Joe unit so uh, you know working towards starting Joe Casey in the place that he wanted to be Tim. Uh, two more pieces of context. One, and we said this when we got to the final issue of Brandon Jorwa's run, this issue zero arrived in stores two weeks after the final issue of the previous volume. So it, it wasn't a full month, wasn't two months, it wasn't, as we are experiencing right now in the world of G.I. Joe, six months between the end of one G.I. Joe and the start of another. And that's awesome. And, and 25 cents. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. So a little history lesson. All right. So this, this book comes out, this book is cover dated June, 2005. And the previous issue, the final issue, the Brandon Jarrell run is cover dated May of 2005. So three years earlier, uh, cover dated March, 2002, DC Comics published a special issue of Batman and it wasn't the monthly Batman, it was a one-shot, and it was called Batman the Ten Cent Adventure. And this was the first part of a crossover, and the crossover was so important that DC wanted to make it so easy for everyone to get that it was almost free. And half a year later, six months later, uh, Marvel at that time, in cover dated October 2002, Marvel's run by Joe Quesada, and Bill Jemis. And they're throwing a lot of crazy ideas at the wall. And they're doing it with a lot of attitude and sass. And to sort of needle DC, and also to get a bunch of attention on an important relaunch for the regular monthly Fantastic Four comic, an issue, which is the first issue by a new creative team, is published with a cover price of nine cents. Uh, that's... <laughs> That's Fantastic Four number sixty. That that's the that's the run which launches by uh, Chris Claremont and Alan Davis and Salvador Larocca in the um, Heroes Return era. And this is the issue sixty is the first issue by Mark Wade and Mike Waringo, and that's a great run. And then 
another six months later, because DC informally has a um, what's the term? Favored nation, equal equal nation uh, status for Batman and Superman. You know, if you do something big for Superman, you'd probably do it for Batman and vice versa. Um, so Superman has a ten cent comic. This is cover dated March two thousand three, and. This is a special issue. It's not the monthly Superman book. And it's it's the first issue by a new creative team, uh, Stephen T. Siegel and Scott McDaniel. They then take over the monthly Superman. And that run is most famous for being the run before Jim Lee draws Superman for a year, which means no one remembers it. <laughs> uh, and they also introduced a new, a new Supergirl that is out of continuity. Um, and so in the couple of years... Um, and I might be forgetting some 25 cent comics, but in the early to mid 2000s, there were a bunch of fun stunts where in very high profile ways, publishers were experimenting with really cheap one-off comics to get a lot of attention. And I don't remember from sort of, you know, comic book store shop talk or Wizard Magazine or, you know, Comic Shop News or the Internet. I don't remember how much people were talking about G.I. Joe, America's Elite Number Zero. Mark, you talked about how you were on the Devil's Due boards uh, at the time. Do you remember people talking about or how the the Joe Casey relaunch? So, so this is probably my own bias, but I think that there, in that tight-knit community on the board i don't think that there was too much positivity about this relaunch i think that uh we sort of saw brandon joe as kind of one of our own as a you know a true gi joe fan who knew all of the stuff and as much as i've got critics you know we've had criticisms about you know the fine details of all of the the issues as of we've we've you know, read them i was i was enjoying uh, very much enjoying it at the time and my kind of reaction, and I think a reaction of many, was was kind of like, oh, I was enjoying that. I, th- I thought Brandon Joe was good, and he kind of got G.I. Joe, and he understood the characters and was going some, in some interesting places. I didn't really want to to see that end. And now, now we've got a new guy coming in. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure about this. So, so that was kind of, <laughs> that was my, my reaction at the time was uh, a little bit of wariness as to, to who is this new guy and, and you know, how is he going to be any better than that that guy that we were just enjoying uh, on, on the book? And, and yeah, I think, you know, because that community was, you know, relatively small and sort of, I think, had a slight sense of, you know, protection, feeling, you know, protective of, of Brandon Joe, I think there was, a yeah, a little bit of not sort of fully embracing the this idea of a relaunch. And that you could see a little bit of that in in some of the Yo Joe questions to Blaylock about the the relaunch that, that it was it was sort of coming from quite a guarded place, wasn't it? The the sort of the tone of those questions of what's what's going on here. Yeah, um, at the end of this uh, Yo Joe interview, there's a question: uh, What are your sales expectations for the relaunch title? Blaylock responds: It would be nice to double or triple our sales, but that's what everyone wants, right? Uh, don't think I've given away all of our surprises for this. Got to save something for the comic book news websites. And I think we we we've just referred to this, and it's it's not desperation. 
But, you know, you and I and all the readers and fans who can armchair quarterback, it's really easy to look at a relaunch and say, oh, you didn't have to do this. And Blaylock absolutely had to do this. Mm. And what I'm sort of reading in the first half of that answer, it would be nice to double or triple our sales, right? I don't know what the numbers were at the end of the previous series, if they were okay or bad or we have to cancel it. But the the only way for Devils do to make money off G.I. Joe is to make G.I. Joe. And you must respond to the market. And so I... And, and you know, when we interviewed Blaylock, we, we got to ask him questions and hear answers, not just about him as a creative, right? Writing or doing breakdowns of issues, but running a company. And so I think you and I represent two good poles, uh, sort of opposite poles, where you were a little protective. And I thought, man, sign me up. Yes, relaunch this. <laughs> and the fact that uh, I think in the final issue of the previous series, and you sort of read between the lines in this zero issue and in these interviews at the time, you don't have to know what just happened to enjoy this new series. It's not just smaller team of characters. Uh, we're not digging into all the continuity. It's implied and there's there are two pieces of dialogue in this zero issue which allude to this you don't need to have read the last three or five or ten issues and you know there are plenty of um relaunches where that's not the case uh we we just placed our orders for a reprint of the 1991 uh jim lee x-men issue number one right just a single issue uh reprint that's coming out in a few months this is this a facsimile edition yes yes uh-huh. so it will it will have the original ads, and because uh, Marvel insists on continuing to reprint this with, uh, from its inferior original files, <laughs> uh, all the artwork at the time was shrunk on a photocopier, uh, losing a lot of detail, and every single printing of X-Men number one ever since, including Mutant Genesis 2.0. Anyway, that's uh, why we got to get that artist edition, that Jim Lee artist. Anyway, what was I talking about? So... Um, Jim Lee, uh, Chris Claremont, Jim Lee, X-Men number one. That's a big, exciting, best-selling of all time comic book relaunch, right? And I read that having not read, I'd only been reading X-Men for two years, right? And there's a lot I didn't know. And there is a weird amount that you need to know for that comic to be satisfying because on the final page, Magneto is threatening uh, humanity and Moira Metagart is crying and she says, this is all my fault. And maybe it's an issue two. Maybe it's an issue one. But there's this thread where Magneto had been turned into a baby at one point, And Warhammer Taggart had changed <laughs> his memory or something so he wouldn't be a villain. And Claremont, at the end of this, I think it's in the first issue and not in the second issue, leans heavily into this old story point. And maybe it had a footnote, right? But at the time, I remember thinking, What? What's this? And man, if you, you can see Joe Casey very reasonably, you know, starting his own direction and with two bits of dialogue, nodding to what has gone on before and not worrying about it. And that's totally fine. Yeah, it, we're, we're getting a little bit into the detail of it, but but there's a definite sort of lightness of touch of, you know, Joe Casey, has seemed, in, in the interview, he seemed to indicate that you know he's he's read the backstory he's he's um definitely read all of devil's due and chances are he's sort of you know 
lightly flick through some of the early um, early Marvel stuff as well. But yeah, there's a, a deafness of touch of, of saying, yeah, we're continuing what came before. You know, some of that backstory is is definitely a building block for this, but we're not going to make too big a, a deal of it. You don't, you know, don't need to know all of that. I'll say I'll say one more thing about sort of what the market wants, right? Um, the market was no longer supporting the the Brandon Jurwa series, and Blaylock had to do something, whether or not you liked the Brandon Jurwa run. And it is entirely possible that if Jurwa's run had been a small core cast that wasn't big on long-term stories and deeper cut characters, that sales would have declined and the book would have had it relaunched. And the opposite would have happened, that they'd gotten a writer to do not a smaller cast of characters, but the include a, bu- a bigger team with a bunch of the of the uh, established Joes because the the current cycle in a lot of monthly comics is it used to be every four years and it's shortened now now it's every three years two years one and a half years you have to shake things up or relaunch and that goes back to these sort of longer term problems in comic book publishing that I think start in the late eighties. But it's funny to me that Casey's hired to do this specific thing. And, you know, it's like Justice League, right? Every every two or three years, DC starts Justice League over with the core five or six members. And then a year in, someone will leave. Batman will leave or Green Lantern will leave. And a bunch of other characters will come in. People who have sometimes been on the Justice League or sort of characters who could never be in the Justice League like Lobo or Harley Quinn. <laughs> and then, you know, at the two or three year mark, there has to be a new writer or a new cosmic event. That book has to end. And sometimes it's the sort of core five or six back at the end. And sometimes it's not. And then a new Justice League series starts with the core five or six. Avengers always does this. Justice League always does this. And G.I. Joe, to some extent, may have to do this. Okay, let's get on to the next thing in our running order, which is the cover. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Tim. I forgot that there are two covers. Uh, Do you know that there are two covers? There's a second printing with... Uh, Flint uh, holding his pistol at us, the audience, as the second cover. Is that what you mean? Yes, yes. Um, and, and and this cover, this second printing cover, I believe, did come out like a couple of months later, as far as I'm aware, because it was it's advertised in the back of a later book, like issue two or three. Oh, cool. Like... All right, the cover to issue zero, the first printing is notable to me for a couple reasons. One, it's got mystery. You and I know who all these characters are. But if you handed this to a casual G.I. Joe fan, they'd only be able to guess half the characters. If you handed this to a non-fan, but who's interested, they would guess zero or one of these characters correctly. And uh, I appreciate that mystery. I actually think and I'm really picky about covers, and G.I. Joe in comics has a long history <laughs> of fine covers. I think that this is not Caselli's best work, and this is not Sunjaraj's best work. There is, it's a little hard to describe, but there is 
something about the looseness of the pencils and then the sort of sketchiness or looseness or painterly quality of Raj's digital color that to me says shows that this cover is unfinished. And I don't think it technically is, but I've always found that the sort of lack of information, sort of Duke's face and everything under his chin, you know, shipwreck, flint, and the, the soft quality of all of the foreground wreckage and the background wreckage. I've always found this cover to be lackluster. It's a good cover. It's not a great cover. And it is not the cover to issue number one, that's for sure. Uh, which we'll talk about in a future episode. Uh, my third reaction to this cover is uh, it's striking because it's all one color. It's all this um, smoky uh, maroon red, this grayish red. And number four, this cover features what you could call 9-11 imagery. The, the wreckage behind these characters and the wreckage in front of them with that rebar recalls the the collapsed World Trade Center towers uh, from these terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. And um, I remember when Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds, when that film with Tom Cruise was released, there are two moments in the film where there's some ash floating in the air after one of the attacks. And when Tom Cruise is looking for, I think, his daughter, and there are a bunch of photos and printouts of people pinned on a wall, like, you know, missing, I'm looking for this person. And I remember feeling the sort of ripple in the movie theater that a few people around me recognized this as recalling things that we saw on the news or in person after the terrorist attacks of September 11th. And I think it made people a little uncomfortable, but it's also perhaps sort of true. This is what would happen and maybe a powerful visual reference. Um, so G.I. Joe here is making a reference, and this is not New York City, this is not 2001, but you can't deny that these shapes and this kind of drawing recalls that. And it's interesting to me because the Devil's Due G.I. Joe comic is born in the context of the terrorist attacks of September 11th, and yet the comic never referred to it, right? So, you know, in the Marvel run, JFK gets mentioned once, you know, the Vietnam or the conflict in Southeast Asia gets mentioned. But when it comes time for the uh, Gulf War, the Joes don't actually refer to the real Gulf War. They have their own version. Uh, and so it was, you know, Hasbro wasn't going to want to do it. Devil's Do wasn't going to want to do it. But in 2001, 2002... There is no reference in the G.I. Joe comic, even though the G.I. Joe is said in the real world in the comics. You know, Pearl Harbor happened in G.I. Joe and the Statue of Liberty is a real thing in New York in G.I. Joe. You know, it's not like some other version, you know, with like Cobra Commander or I don't know, like a Planet, a planet of the Apes ape, right? Holding, holding that torch. And so here, both on the cover and also a little bit inside, this issue now, four years later makes its own version of this kind of terrible attack on an American city. I was just going to say that, that it's it's slightly to the side, really, of the Devil's Due continuity almost, but the first arc of Frontline, written by 
uh, Hammer does sort of acknowledge the events and sort of pay tribute in some small way to the Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, good, rescue good, good memory. So I, I really like this cover. I, th- I think it's um, quite, it's very striking and quite visually different. And I, I mentioned to you that it's, to me, recalled a little bit the promotional artwork by Dennis Calero for Age of the Apocalypse, um, which featured in a couple of places as, I think, in t- some interior teaser adverts as a poster and in previews. Uh, some of which carried the slogan, Professor X is dead. And it was sort of this intriguing mystery image of these X-Men characters who looked somewhat familiar, but but different with a giant burning X behind them, sort of backlighting them with this um, red light and, and flame, which at the time sort of just really, really struck me and intrigued me about you know, what is this, this new thing and, and sort of really got me quite excited for the age of apocalypse based on this um, teaser image i appreciate you mentioning this because i've always thought that that painted image you're referring to was bill sinkevich and it's not it's more likely than not sort of <laughs> not trying to give that one an, any sort of an homage but um it, it it was uh was what it made me recall because um it made such an impact on me at the uh at the time right um so ne- oh did, did you want to say anything about the um the second printing cover with with flint on it uh yeah the second printing cover looks like one of those covers where they've taken a pay a full page splash mm. from the interior or a panel and made it into the cover but it's not and my preference for second prints is that they use the same image and they don't change anything Except, let's say, the color of the logo, or in the early 90s, DC did a bunch of second and third printings where they would put a very small Roman numeral two or three in the top left corner box under the issue number by the price. I think if I've said this before uh, about variant covers in general, but I think if you've spent weeks or months promoting something like a brand new G.I. Joe launch, and it's got this mysterious striking cover of Joe's coming out of wreckage that's on fire behind them. I think the best way to sell that again is to use that image again, not to print it in black and white or in like randomly blue or green or to change the image completely. And although I like this drawing of Flint on the second printing cover, I think since it's an ensemble book, I think having a solo character on the cover is the wrong choice. But, you know, it's not like it's, I don't know, randomly like some like Heat Viper or Alley Viper, who's not even in the comic. My my last comments on this cover is um, uh, the website mycomicshop.com, which is an online store. They sell back issues. They sometimes, at the end of the, a listing for a back issue, have a few words to describe the cover. Uh-huh. And uh, here it says, black cover, scruffy guy pointing gun. <laughs> Very good. I had one question for you, Tim, and sort of one comment about this cover, uh, and more specifically the relaunch. The title, America's Elite, so it's in this sort of yellow text. America's Elite is has got a sort of five-pointed star either side of it, I guess like a bit like um, a military uniforms P 
pip that you might have on 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 there uh with a with a black background so uh what do you think of the design of that logo component and also the title america's elite exclamation mark uh, but before before you answer I, i'll point out i'll give a couple of my thoughts one I think for a relaunch, it's nice to have a different title in some way to help uh, comic collectors differentiate it from other series. And, and, you know, particularly when it goes into the back issue bins, what am I collecting? Is, you know, is it that Devil's Due issue, you know, 10, you know, picking up the wrong issue, that kind of thing. Uh, I think that does help. Uh, and you know, the second element is the the actual title itself didn't especially resonate with me didn't i don't know i'm not particularly enamored with that title america's elite it sounds somewhat elitist uh literally um you know slightly superior i don't know uh didn't it, yeah didn't didn't really catch sort of catch on for me anyway. i'm okay with the actual title i do appreciate that it is different than the previous series and it's also visually different at the time, I was, this wasn't G.I. Joe Reloaded, so this isn't that comparison to the Marvel Universe and the ultimate Marvel Universe. America's Elite is still the Devil's Due G.I. Joe Universe, but in a little way, it feels like it's, you know, we're going to make them uh, not more modern, but we're going to do this peppier and more accessible. And so um, what strikes me about the ultimate universe at marvel is that the logo treatment was very different you know ultimate spider-man is ultimate x-men totally different from amazing spider-man or uncanny x-men and here devil's do is using the same established italicized gi joe logo type which is fine by me but i always felt like there's a big missed opportunity here uh where um no one ever talks about this if you look at the marvel run the G.I. Joe logo changes color all the time. And a lot of times it's white with the red, white, and blue. But many times it's not. And uh, what is it, issue issue 90, right? My first my first issue. Isn't the logo just yellow and red? It's like yellow fill with red uh, outline. Something like that, right? And I suspect Hasbro was not flexible at the time. And so Devil's Due could only use this. And so whatever G.I. Joe comic they published, right? Spinoff, ninjas, ninjas, focus, miniseries. Uh, and so what they're going to change is the the tag, the additional words. But I thought that this would have been a good place to do something different with the actual. I'm not I'm not saying as as extreme as like the ultimate X-Men logo is from the X-Men logo, but really just sort of some color changes so that at a glance, you know, you're not looking at the other book or the other book. What makes me laugh about America's Elite is not the actual two words, but the fact that there's an exclamation mark. And I think that might be rubbing you the wrong way without you realizing okay. it, because that feels like it's trying too hard. And, you know, when you look up this comic on websites, you know, Yo Joe, eBay, no one ever uses the exclamation mark. Mm. And technically, that is not the title of this comic, though we've all agreed it is. The technical title <laughs> yeah. of this comic is G.I. Joe Comic Book Volume 2. And when when Devil's Do got the license and the comic book in the Indisha, 
right? Issue one in 2001, reinstated. When issue when it when in the Indisha, the comic was not called G.I. Joe or G.I. Joe Real American Hero. And at Marvel, the full title is G.I. Joe Real American Hero. It always felt to me like Hasbro was sort of not giving Devil's Due the full sort of the full respect or treatment that this whole enterprise deserved that because is it issue one uh reinstated is, is is that where there's a little like uh hasbro licensing logo on the back cover hasbro was doing um, that. right 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 yeah hasbro yeah, yeah. was doing that on at the, the um michael what's he called uh david michael beck is that right yeah that on his painted back on, cover. on his painted background they'd have the little blue hasbro logo Hasbro was doing that a little bit around 2001. And again, in terms of, I th- I think, not allowing any changes on the traditional G.I. Joe logo, you know, white, gray, red, white, blue with black outlines. Hasbro was certainly allowed to put its little stamp on the back cover of every G.I. Joe licensed book, but it shouldn't because it it's, it's trying too hard. It's unnecessary. Um, you know, not everything needs to be sort of a, a tiny thumbnail-sized advertisement for Hasbro or a reminder that Hasbro has deigned Devil's Due acceptable <laughs> to continue this license, you know? Um, it's like, no, 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 Hasbro's name is in the fine print on the inside, and maybe someone gets thanked on the inside front cover. Um, so that the title here in the Indisha isn't even G.I. Joe America's Elite. It's G.I. Joe Comic Book Volume 2. Uh, makes me sort of roll my eyes and chuckle all over again. <laughs> Interesting. You know, you know, the the thought exercise is if you're going to have to come up with a different title so that the relaunch is easier to identify and differentiate from the previous 43 issue run, what mark, what one or two or three words would you jumble together as a GI Joe subtitle for this new title? You know, it's going to be like. G.I. Joe, Operation Steel, or G.I. Joe, Best of the Best, or mm-hmm. uh, G.I. Joe, Silver Force Recon, you know, <laughs> and you could argue that America's Elite is redundant because it's doing what sort of a real American hero was already doing. And yeah. both of them are on the cover. Both with exclamation marks, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm okay with Real American Hero having an ex- exclamation mark because that's there from the begin from the beginning. And when I see that, I think of the jingle and the way that it's sung in the jingle yeah. and then the theme song. Although I guess that's the argument for why America's Elite hasn't. Right. Um, all right. Is this time to talk about the comic? Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, let's get into the insides with uh, initially a plot breakdown. The American president reactivates the G.I. Joe team with General Joe Colton at the helm. This is just in time for the team of Roblox, Scarlet and Shipwreck to fly from their new headquarters, which is The Rock in Wyoming, to investigate a cataclysmic event that has occurred in Chicago. Elsewhere, Stalker, Snake Eyes and Flint attack a Cobra cell in Germany, And finally, it is revealed that Vance Wingfield is the architect of the attack on Chicago. Where to start, Tim? Um, I actually want to start at the end. For people like me who forget, uh, remind me and us, is Vance Wingfield the dad from issue five of the Marvel run or the son from that frontline arc from Devil's Due? 
It's a good question because actually my memory of that got a little bit fuzzy. So I did have to double check myself uh, to be completely clear. So um, Vance Wigfield is from Saturday Night, is from uh, issue four of G.I. Joe. So he was the guy in that issue heading up that sort of strange terrorist splinter group funded by Cobra. Okay, you, so you're, you're talking about 1982. That is right, yeah. Okay. With and, and uh, the Strike First uh, organization and cap that he was wearing there. Uh, so that is uh, Vance. And then Tyler Wingfield is from uh, Frontline Issues 11 to 14, history repeating. And so he is the son following in his father's footsteps. And uh, his mother also appears there. And uh, we sort of saw him coming to a somewhat mysterious sort of possibly sticky end, left a little bit open in uh, Frontline to to Tyler the Sun, who was falling out of a plane. And uh, Vance Wigfield uh, was shot in the back by his wife in the pages of G.I. Joe issue four back in 1982. So he was shot in his back, presumed to be dead, never seen again. And now he is uh, in a wheelchair, so not quite so dead as we would have thought. So Vance Wingfield, the elder, the dad, the older guy, who is on the first page of Marvel G.I. Joe number four from 1982, he has, doesn't he have a curly mustache? He does. Okay. And he doesn't have it. He does, no longer has his curly mustache. It right. was a okay. somewhat, somewhat <laughs> cartoony, uh, quite slightly defying physics and biology mustache. Yes. Um, I, I'm okay with the character many years later looking different, but you know me, I would prefer characters to not change their hair or facial hair. Um, I'm, I'm not into shipwreck having a goatee or. Uh, just a chin beard. Chin I think. beard, yeah. I think no, Shipwreck no. should, Shipwreck in G.I. Joe comics should look like his 1985 action figure and, you know, Roadblock, uh, you know, and Breaker and, you know, in the movies, everyone should look like their, <laughs> like their first action figure uh, unless we've all decided that their first comic appearance is, is more definitive. Yeah, Shipwreck's, Shipwreck's uh, lack of lip moustache is a little bit egregious but um yeah like like you said i think if uh vince vance wigfield did have his curly moustache or, or at least some hint of the moustache it would yeah be a sort of visual shorthand cue to help us in um you know those of us less you know who, who don't immediately remember the the character and give us a bit bit more of a visual clue um and while we are focused for a moment on the end, and we've been talking about Joe Casey and the context of this launch so much, here is Joe Casey throwing all of the fans a mm. bone, mm. you know, directly referring back to an early Marvel story, or at least in, in a character, in, in the form of a character, and indirectly referring to a previous Devil's Due story. You know, Vance Wingfield here isn't talking about his son. But the fact that he's showing up here says to readers, Joe Casey is paying attention to continuity. He's not going to worry about it. And he's not going to he's not going to make you worry about it, but he's aware of it. Mm, yeah. And 
you could cynically counter that unless you actually, you know, do something with this character that says more about the original issue four and the frontline arc, you're just sort of closing your eyes, reaching your hand into a bag, pulling out a Marvel <laughs> comic. Oh, um, Vance Wingfield. Uh, yeah. Did he die? Maybe not. Okay. He's back. And, and it doesn't prove that Casey is sort of quote on our side or doing all of his research. Uh, but I think it's, I think it's a good start. And, you know, when I turned the page, I thought it was going to be Cobra commander. So that it's, not Cobra Commander, and that it is someone who it could be logically in the larger G.I. Joe story is, I think, a, a good uh, note or cliffhanger to end on. I'm sure you want to start at the beginning of the issue, though. Yeah, so the beginning of the issue sort of starts with the inside front cover where we've got a lineup of the G.I. Joe team. It's got their uh, serial, name, serial number, code name, file name, speciality and status within that sort of a little blurb to get us up to speed um which is more helpful probably for for subsequent issues and and then that kind of is is sort of echoed a couple of pages in on that double splash where then there's a duty roster where we have eight sort of circular thumbnail uh headshots of the gi joe team uh, yeah, interesting te- story device. Sort of interesting, interesting way of helping easing in the the new and lapsed readers to let us to let them know who these characters are. Yeah, and hearkening back to I guess you know Justice League and Avengers and and so on, where that device was used much more frequently. Yeah, the um, the inside front cover. I think also is a visual reference to uh, what's it called? The, okay, so the original three issues that Devils Do published, which was um, profiles of Joes and Cobras and vehicles, that's GI Joe Battle Lines, that's and then battles. a couple Battle Files, right? And then a couple years later, there's a one shot with additional pages that has a cover that's um, a, a cover swipe of Michael Golden's Yearbook One cover, and that's. That's like G.I. Joe Battle Files data disc, data handbook. This is the G.I. Joe, yeah, G.I. Joe America's Elite data desk, desk book handbook, which is cover dated October 2005. So okay, it so comes out a few, uh, few issues in. Okay. And all right. So the actual, so the graphic design style of this inside front cover with the Joe sort of headshots and their stats, it, it looks like sort of you're looking at a computer screen. It, it's not supposed to look like typed letters on paper or, mm-hmm. you know, handwritten uh, handwritten ink on uh, paper. Um, it's supposed to look like tech. Uh, two things immediately strike me about page one of this comic. One, Stefano Caselli and Sunjur Raj are drawing in a version of the style that has previously been made popular at Dreamwave. And we referred to this in a previous episode when talking about the G.I. Joe versus the Transformers crossover that Devil's Do did. I don't know if it was the, I think it was the second one, where at Dreamwave for their very, 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 very hot Transformers comics, and then the company went kaput. 
the penciler pencils the characters and pencils the background, but the background can be a little softer and even rendered or shaded. And the characters are inked, and then the colorist colors in the characters, the transformers and the humans, uh, in a cell shaded style. And then the colorist in these Transformers comics paints the backgrounds without any black lines. And so it yeah. looks like animation. And that's pretty much what's happening here in G.I. Joe America's Elite Number Zero. There are darker and crisper lines in these backgrounds, but overall the treatment of light and some of the lines uh, is that sort of digital painted style. And so this book immediately, A, looks different than the previous Devil's Do G.I. Joe comics. B, looks like something that is sort of already hot that's out there in the world of comics. And C, looks great. Caselli mm. and, and Raj do really nice work. Um, and then, then I say, I see in panel one, oh, Chicago, that's where Devil's Do is. Oh no, something bad's going to happen. And then I, th I turn the page and I think, oh, Joe Casey is either having some fun with Devil's Do because he's dropping this horrendous event, this satellite that crashes in downtown Chicago. He's dropping this on Devil's Do's front porch. Either he's having some fun with it or he's not. And I am interpreting it that way. But the 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 context is is there whether intentional or not, and I think it's funny. Um, and the comparison is in is it nineteen eighty nine? The new universe at Marvel was changing and ending, and writer artist John Byrne did not get along with Jim Shooter. And when when John Byrne took over Starbrand uh, from Jim Shooter. Uh, in the comic, Byrne destroys Pittsburgh, which is where Shooter, <laughs> which is where Shooter's from. Yeah, I mean, to to your point, I think this this issue looks gorgeous, let's say, and and clearly, you know, a lot of time and effort uh, has been spent on the on the details of every panel from across the creative team, and particularly the the colors look very painterly, very textured, a lot of detail. Mm -hmm there and, and but but not just sort you know it's not egregious use of color in terms of throwing everything um and the kitchen sink at it it sort of to my eye at least sort of fits nicely and sort of scanning ahead a, a, a few issues beyond this one um i think the the sort of the time pressures must must be playing a factor because they don't seem quite as painterly and, and sort of as rich in subsequent issues to to this one, so I suspect that maybe Sundaraj had a little bit more time to play with on this one and took a little bit uh, longer and, and sort of didn't have that luxury for subsequent issues. But we'll we'll get there when we'll get there. I was in the back of my mind pessimistically feeling this when I read issue zero and one. Oh, you know, Caselli's so good. I don't I don't know that he's going to stick around. But oh, this issue zero looks so good. I don't think they can keep this up. And uh, com monthly comics have a long history of issue number ones, or in this case, issue number zero, either because the creative team has a big lead time and they make issue one look really good and then they can't keep it up, or it wasn't even the lead time 
but the creative team wants to just knock it out of the park and they can't keep it up month after month. And, uh, and you know, there are a lot of series where issue one looks particularly great and, you know, issues two through five look regular great. <laughs> and the the duty roster page, which is that first double page splash of the, the book uh, with the lineup, Scarlet, Snake Eyes, Stalker, Flint, Roblox, Shipwreck, Duke and Storm Shadow. They, they are all pulling these intense uh, look and look at us out of the side of their eyes expressions that you kind of alluded to uh, previously Tim the the font for the title of this story the newest war the font for the word duty roster the font for their code names and the font for the names in the credits on pages two and three is the GI Joe italicized huh. military stencil font and that's fun I don't think this is a font that wants to be used in this many ways. They're, the code names in these eight inset panels, uh, when you shrink the words that much, I think they become a little hard to read. And I don't think that wants to be a display font. That wants to be a text font. The way that, you know, down on the bottom, the actual words written by, pencils by, inks by, that's a text font. That's not a a display font. And I have, a, if you're wondering what I'm talking about, I have a little um, example. Uh, you know how the word Walt Disney is written in cursive whenever you see anything related to the Walt Disney company. And that's not actually Walt Disney's signature. We're supposed to think it is. Um, there's a, uh, there's a flower shop down the street from me, which has these uh, like sticker letters that they got uh, and they put them in the window and they spell out uh like 10 words with like the name of the store and like some things that you can buy. And they're all in this sort of Disney uh, cursive and it doesn't work. It's hard to read and it gets jumbled and overly ornate and silly. And that's because that is a display font, not a text font. Mm. And you and listeners, you in your own, <laughs> in your own travels may have seen some sign or like maybe you know a sixth grader who's experimenting with graphic design and really shouldn't and <laughs> are making that mistake <laughs> well i mean it could be worse it could they could all be in diff completely different fonts but uh so so we've got the duty roster there and i was thinking about the team uh lineup we've got these guys plus i guess joe colton who who didn't uh who looked like he was going to die at the end of the last series and uh didn't die presume possibly possibly a case of uh duke from gi joe the movie where they did, decided against killing him at the last minute so that he could uh he could feature here but uh the the team very much being hammers a list cast really the team that you would expect to to see plus a couple of extra i'd say so i'd say like hammers a list would be scarlet snake eyes stalker storm shadow plus the the kind of the buddy team of roblox and, and duke being key characters uh, and so flint being a key character um and shipwreck being being a key sort of devil's due carry forward so so um of the six i'm uh, sorry of the eight uh, you've definitely got six of of hammers key cast plus uh flint and, and shipwreck as as rounding out as being key players uh and in terms of the choices that all makes complete sense i don't know that there's any of those people that i'd say leave them out or you know look who's missing and at the time 
Casey said, um, it was asked about the kind of the the short that short list of characters, and he said that um, he didn't write characters that he didn't like. Part of the initial pitch to GI Joe was the cast, and they agreed with the choices. And he knew enough about the property to know who the big guns were, and that's who he wanted to write about. There's there's a little um, subtext here, which every GI Joe writer. And, you know, every comics writer who's writing a team uh, book, uh, there are a lot of white males on the G.I. Joe team. And when you tell a story, you have to mix it up. Right. So we're going to have we're going to have some team members who aren't male. I'm going to have some team members who aren't white. Uh, and I guess you go a step further because Storm Shadows from Japan. So we're going to have team members. I mean, it's a real American hero. Right. They're all born in America, except for Action Force, <laughs> except for Action Force. Um, so you turn the page and it's the White House. The president's talking to Joe Colton. And I don't know that we're getting any new listeners uh, for this episode, Mark, because we're starting at a big relaunch. But I feel like in the way that this comic is reintroducing a lot of things, I when I was reading this comic, I thought, oh, I should, I should say this out loud in the podcast. Joseph Colton, of course, is this link for G.I. Joe mythology and continuity back to the original 1960s action figure in the real world. And is this character who's created in 1994 in the real world where you and I are talking, uh, where for the anniversary of G.I. Joe, uh, there's an action figure made both the 12 inch size and the three and three quarter inch size, whose code name is G.I. Joe and whose real name is revealed to be Joseph Colton. The idea being that the 80s G.I. Joe does have a link to some version in the story of the 60s G.I. Joe, sort of. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point. I was looking, I was trying to figure it out where the, the, the name Joe Colton first originated. Oh, I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. Kirk Bazigian's son is named Colt. Colton. Indeed. So, so it was a, a Hasbro edict back in... 1994 when they were making the the tour, the three and three quarter inch version of uh the original gi joe that that's where they came up with the file name yeah i mean uh, i i wouldn't use the word edict i'd use the word decision dec- yeah, yeah, yeah 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 so kirk bazigian was the i think he was the vice president of uh boys toys marketing mm-hmm. by then and even though he was sort of high enough up that he might not make a ton of G.I. Joe decisions, he was still making, he was still involved in G.I. Joe. And so uh, he named the character. So the character's first name is Joe because of G.I. Joe. And his last name is a reference to a Hasbro employee, uh, a family member. So um, this scene where the president is talking to Joe Colton, the president in one word balloon sort of waves off General Ray and the thing that strikes me about this scene is that Casey is holding back the Joes. He starts on, you know, everyday people in a in a terrible scene. I mean, we don't we don't even see people. We just see we mostly see Chicago, right? And then he goes to politics and the military brass. And then when you turn the page to pages six and seven, you finally get the Joes. So he's holding back a little bit for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, dr- drama's sake. 
Um, the coloring and the, the lighting on this might be, I don't know, this might be my printed copy. Some of the pages in my copy of issue zero, some of the word balloons. So here on pages six and seven, the word balloons, the, uh, all the lettering is slightly, slightly blurry, like, like the letters got stamped and then slightly stamped a second time. Not, not like a printing error, but like printed a tiny bit too dark. And I find this whole scene in the Oval Office. Might just be your copy. I can't see that. Okay. Uh, I, I think this is a printing issue, but this scene is printed, um, particularly dark. And I think, I think Sundaraj uh, may have been using a lot of high, uh, bright brights and dark darks. And these two pages, uh, feel darker than sort of everything else in the issue. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, I like how much drama Caselli gets out of two people talking. And mm -hmm. this is not something we have had with some previous GI Joe artists at devil's do when Caselli draws the president with his hand in his pocket in panel two of this two pages in the White House, the camera is at uh, three feet. The camera's at waist height on the president. When uh, on the right page, uh, page five of this comic, panel two, when Colton is talking and he's got his, his hands clasped together and he's saying, that's a matter of opinion, but this is a different world. Um, Caselli has the camera below Colton's head and tipped up. And Caselli does this a lot. He he keeps a low horizon line in his in many of his panels, or the horizon line is completely out of the panel below it, and he tips the camera up. And this is essential to create drama and presence for action comics and visual storytelling, comics and storyboarding. And you know, the panel right below it, where the president says, Not sure I appreciate the inference, General. You are allowed to have the camera higher than someone looking down at them. You're certainly allowed to do that. But um, at the bottom of the next page, when Roblox is saying, now let's talk about peppers. For my money, I say habanero all the way, right? The camera is below Roblox and tipped up. It's looking at him just a little bit. And every time you do that, you give your dramatic characters, your action heroes, a little bit more presence and power and size. And that combined with good anatomy and uh good storytelling and just a lot of pep and just you know caselli just like draws the heck out of a lot of things like this kitchen right and uh hair and you know costumes the art is really exciting throughout this issue what we don't get much focus on in this issue is vehicles they are there there's there's a there's a helicopter there's some planes there's a tank but if you actually look page by page in this issue number zero, though vehicles appear um, and they are a part of the story, I don't, they're not an afterthought, but they're in that direction. Casey's definitely more interested, at least in sort of a crowded issue number zero. I, I don't mean crowded bad. I mean, just a lot's going on, a lot of characters. Casey doesn't have room to sort of let you like really see any of the vehicles or love them in the way mm -hmm. that in some Hama stories, you know, a Joe calls out a vehicle and then the Joes do something with that vehicle and the vehicle driver or pilot tells you about it because they're toys to sell uh, and because Hama's into the gear of it. And this is not an insult. This is an observation. Casey is not into the gear of this. Yeah. He's, he's, he's using the gear of it, but he's not into it. 
Yeah, well, we do have vehicles there. They're quite sort of classic uh, G.I. Joe vehicles. We've got uh, a Hiss tank. We have got uh, that new helicopter gunship thing that they they have that keeps on appearing. We have uh, a fleet of Sky Strikers, and there we've got those uh, miniature green hovery fly things. What are those called, Tim? The Sky sk- Skyhawk. Skyhawk. Yeah, I'm, uh, because those never got released in the UK. Um, <gasps> I don't. Um, one of those ones that's a bit of a mental blind spot for me. Caselli draws those Sky Strikers a little stubby. I actually <laughs> thought they were <laughs> yeah, a little stubby, actually, aren't they? I actually thought they were the. Uh, what's the what's the F sixteen with the with the handle that you can hold that mm. came out in nineteen ninety three or was there was there a jet that came out in like two thousand two that I don't like yeah there this is was... there is like a sort of stubby version of the Sky Striker isn't there it's, um, I, th- I thought this was that there was the Storm Eagle in nineteen ninety two which is the one with the handle that you mentioned there was the Ghost Striker X sixteen from nineteen ninety three. And later on, there was a Thunderwing jet in 2004, but this picture looks too much like the Sky Strike. Okay, page eight, which is, uh, it's after you turn the page from the scene with Roadblock in the kitchen. Um, page eight, panel two, Scarlet is talking to Shipwreck and Roadblock. And this panel has a, a weak composition. I'm not talking about the camera placement in terms of how high it is looking down. That's fine. I'm talking about Caselli's actual arrangement within a square or a rectangle of elements of of positive space, like a character or a chair or a gun, and negative space, like the space around them. Caselli may not know where the letterer is going to put the word balloons here. He may be working from a plot, not a script. He may be working from a script that gets changed. But listeners, if you've looked at this panel and you've never had a problem with it, great. I look at this <laughs> panel and I think, ugh. There's all of this uninteresting and oddly balanced empty space. Oh, right. You're talking about the panel the, where Scarlet is sort of just on her own with um, shipwreck and roadblock yeah. in the bottom left-hand corner. And she's just surrounded by kind of dead space, essentially. Yeah. Well, you said, yes, yes, there in the bottom left-hand corner. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not a deal breaker for me this is not me saying you know stefano caselli is not ready for prime time you know it's hard it's hard to do 22 pages of comics in a month and you know this issue is beautiful it happens again on page 20 panel three uh this is the second from the last page of the comic and it's a wordless panel with a bunch of helicopters flying over chicago and the placement of the helicopter on the left is weird because it's touching the bottom of the panel, which flattens the panel, right? It, it diminishes the sense of depth. And it also sort of grounds the helicopter. Like, I don't believe the helicopter is not in the sky and on the ground or sitting on a building. But graphically, when you have the part of, part of the helicopter, its nose, touching the edge of the panel, graphically that, that says... That that helicopter is sort of like stuck there. And then it happens again with the rotor blades. And these rotor blades shouldn't be drawn where you can see them. They should be drawn like a blur. And so Stefano Caselli's art, I really like it. But from the get-go with his G.I. Joe work, 
uh, through his, when he gets to Marvel a couple years later and he draws Amazing Spider-Man, to even recently when he's been drawing books for the X office, some of his panel compositions, and I'm not talking about page layout, I'm talking about elements within a panel, right? His, his pages I can read. Storytelling's clear panel to panel. But he has some awkward or boring panel compositions, and it's sort of lightly consistent throughout throughout his work. And if you can't see it, that's great. Don't worry about it. But I, I see it and I, you know, like that panel Scarlet pointing and I think, oh man, this panel just needs sort of two more elements, like a table on one side of Scarlet and a chair and something needs to overlap something or it shouldn't be a square, this should be a rectangle or shipwreck and roadblock need to be more in the panel or there need to be war word balloons. Yeah. Um, so Storm Shadows on the G.I. Joe team. What's what's that all about, Tim? Well, I think I think Casey is going to nod to established readers and say, yes, here's a Marvel reference. Yes, I'll pick up a little bit of what's been happening at Devil's Do. But also, he's going to drop some stuff or ignore some stuff or insert something that's just interesting and make it work. And so wherever Storm Shadow was in the previous run... And I'm trying to remember from, I guess technically this takes place after Master and Apprentice 1 and 2. So Storm Shadow says, I can't be near you. I'm too dangerous because I'm still a little brainwashed Mm -hmm. and I'm sort of a cobra and I'm angry at Storm uh, Snake Eyes, but I love him. Is that where we left him? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to to quite pitch where Master and Apprentice 2 fits into the grand scheme of things so so there was that yeah which i think you're essentially right is that that's where he was there was also a rashikage showdown slightly out of continuity but still in a similar place but he's the he's the outsider but kind of still with that bond and in the main books continuity we i think we last saw him he helped duke with the prison breakouts and there was somewhat of a reconciling, but but he kind of left it again that he was, you know, was in, in a place where everything was quite right and stable. Um, something, have, I don't think we've said this yet. Uh, it's a year after the events of issue 43. And I don't think that's in this issue. I think you have to get that from interviews or uh, the original solicit and I'm reading what I believe is the original solicit. Uh, a new era of greatness for G.I. Joe begins here. The newest war. Oh, this is it. The subject of excitement, discussion, and controversy. Joe Casey takes on the Joes. Who will make the cut? Who will lead them? A year has passed since the events of G.I. Joe 43. The world has grown even more chaotic. And when a tragedy of mythic proportions is visited upon Chicago. I'm not, I don't need to, you already did a plot breakdown. But um, for how immediate this issue feels coming out only two weeks after the previous issue, there's a contrast, which is that there's this big time jump so that in terms of story, Joe Casey can either wave away any concerns that readers have. But what about Storm Shadow? He shouldn't be here. Well, some stuff has happened and he's back and maybe Casey would get around to it. Maybe he purposefully never would. Maybe he's leaving it open so someone else might, but this is how comics work. So I'm I'm fine with the big time jump. I was was never convinced by Storm Shadow sort of staying with Cobra, never coming fully out of the brainwashing, which had happened at the end of the Hama run, 
right? But got cut short. So I'm fine with a sort of underexplained, don't worry about it. Storm Shadow's here because he's really cool. It'll create some conflict on the Joe team. And I don't need to see him sort of helping Cobra Commander again, you know, in year five of, of Devil's Do G.I. Joe comics. And when we first see him, he's sort of kneeling in front of, you know, some candles and there's a, like a, I don't know, a jade dragon statue or something in the foreground. And possibly intentionally, it's kind of meant to put, make a bit of mystery as where, where is he? But, but I guess there's, there's a speech bubble there, which is all hands alert. Primary team is away. Which sort of, I guess the, the speaker's blaring out and indicating that he's on base. And then the third panel of Storm Shadow this sort of close up of his face, eyes wide, tiny little pupils, like he's just had a wasp sting him on his bum or something. Um, what's meant? What's meant to be happening in that that panel? Is he just getting a bit excited by the alert and getting ready to move it? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think the idea is that he is meditating mm. in the first panel, and in the second panel. And then in the third panel, he Awake. Op- op- yeah, he opens his eyes and he doesn't gasp, but the audience does. This is one of those things where I think this was if this was a movie, there'd be sort of an intense sort of pulsing sound or musical crescendo. And comics can maybe do this with sound effects, but this kind of comic doesn't have that kind of sound effect. And um so yeah in terms of in terms of story this note is a little vague to me but i'm okay with it so we've not done this for for a while but uh, let's have a bit of gi joe fashion armani prada versace too joe's changed their outfits from black to blue duke and hawk look but don't go changing their kit whoa was that legit swapping camo jackets headgear and boots it's now neon colors and funky space suits sci-fi stalker and even roadblocks while bill flint and muck gave me a shot so go take a walk if clothes aren't your passion because it's comic book talk and lovely gi joe fashion and let's talk about storm shadow his new look so he he's very close to his like b2 look with that that white costume with the kind of the the black urban camo it's uh is there's a lot more sort of noodling going on we can see a bit of better look at his costume later on when he's talking to joe colton in the uh the ready room whatever it is it's uh he's hood up sort of uh piping down his his mask some sort of yeah like i guess it's <laughs> noodling of the details like the class and stuff but it's um it's quite a cool look for Storm Shadow. It's certainly an improvement on the the previous look that that he he had this this white and sort of light and darker kind of camo prints on it. It it fits well, I think. Yes, I'm glad that there are between zero and one Cobra logos on <laughs> this Storm Shadow costume because the previous one had thirty five. I jokes aside, I think it was five, which which is. Um, which is silly (laughs) and it's so not only is he not a cobra so he shouldn't have them even if he was to take those off i thought that that costume was sort of too like superhero mountain climber action figure for a ninja so i appreciate uh you know like didn't the previous one have um like knee pads or shoulder Mm -hmm. pads Mm -hmm. yeah so uh you know like the version one Storm Shadow costume is so simple 
And the version two is so elegant and it's hard to improve on that. So for version three, what do they do? They don't change much. I, I'm talking about action figures. So I turn the page and a hiss tank is crashing into a space with some Cobra soldiers. And I don't actually know, Mark, what's that thing that's over and behind the Cobra soldier's helmet on the right? Uh, It looks like something being knocked over, something like industrial, perhaps. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a basket or a crate that was hanging from the ceiling or a higher level, or it's a catwalk that's pulled apart from the wall and is falling. And I don't think it's dirt. I feel like it's a bag of something like giant bag of, you know, corn or feed or um, something. And I get the sense, this, this is not a criticism. This is sort of a playful comparison. I feel like if this is a Larry Hama scene, we would know what that is, or we would sort of know what kind of space this is. But other than the fact that it's sort of a warehouse or maybe a factory, we don't really know what it is. And some of that is because uh, Casey doesn't tell us in um, captions. Characters don't identify it in story. And, you know, Stalker hasn't been like sit repped in in a previous page. And part of that is because the actual finish of the background is could it could be a little sharper, a little more detail. This is not a major complaint because what I'm getting to is in this zero issue and maybe in this whole series, Casey is going for a faster pace. And, you know, you notice how these are all two page scenes, except for the opening, which is three, but you have a double page splash. So, you know, Chicago accident, two or three pages, White House, two pages, Roblox, one page. Scarlet Shipwreck, one page, although that sort of continues, right? The three of them, one page, right? And now they're in a vehicle, right? Storm Shadow, three panels. Um, Stalker in the tank, uh, two pages. And it ends on this button. Uh, he, he blasts some Cobras from this his tank, and he says, sometimes I love my job. And that's when something else strikes me about Joe Casey's writing, which is that this is going to be a little bit more pop, maybe a little bit more jokey than uh, I'm used to. And I don't, I don't know quite where I'd rank this compared to Jerwa or Blaylock. But, you know, this definitely isn't how Hama would write a scene. And I don't read this dialogue from Stalker and say, that's not how Stalker talks. But I can definitely imagine Hama seeing this and saying, well, that's not the Stalker that I know. Mm-hmm. And... The fact, the fact that Stalker is looking at us and he's not talking to anyone on the radio or another Joe in the scene, it's that it's that sort of, you know, movie thing where a character is talking for the benefit of the audience. And then he, you know, he says the like cool snarky thing and the audience says, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I don't love that in G.I. Joe, but, you know, it's case it's we're halfway through Casey's first issue and he gets to write in his style. Yeah, and I noticed as well that sort of talking to your point about sort of zipping between scenes and and keeping stuff relatively brief before moving on to the next thing, that 
uh, with that comes a lot of uh, locations and establishing shots. And it happens a lot through the book, particularly given the number of pages and just one issue. We've got Chicago, Illinois. We've got uh, Washington, D.C., the Rock Base, Yellowstone National Park, Wyoming, Wiesbaden, Germany, Bethesda, Maryland, and Oregon, as well as returning to a couple of those locations. A lot of locations, a lot of establishing shots. Yeah. I really like first issues of series. And I think I mean more uh, monthly series than miniseries, because every first issue of a series might be sort of the issue that launches the great new series love of your comic reading life. And I won't, I won't go into it now, but you know, I have some favorite first issues and there are some like best ever first issues. And yeah, I think we all like 1982 Marvel GI Joe number one as a, as a touch point. And there are lots of first issues that you read, particularly in the last 15 years where maybe it's, image or dark horse or boom but it you know it's four, it's four it's four or five issues and you read the first issue and you think oh this is just a movie pitch like this is a proof of concept so they can do the miniseries have a graphic novel and then try and sell it as a movie and then maybe in five years we'll be seeing this movie and i don't really care about this comic but what a what a fun challenge it is or what a terrifying challenge it is to have a first issue of an established book that's a team book where the readers are going to demand a bunch of characters, a bunch of action, setting up a new status quo, and also nodding to the previous status quo, and and keeping it clear and keeping it moving. And I think as a, I mean, it's, 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 it's issue zero, so it's not technically a first issue, but it's a first issue. And maybe actually it's harder because... You know, issue zeros are sometimes written so that if someone misses it and they read issue one, that's the other introduction. You don't actually have to read issue zero either because that was the free comic book day one or, you know, whatever it was. Um, so, though, though, interestingly, skipping ahead to issue one without too big a spoiler, the very first, uh, the very top page one, issue one uh, the, are the words continued from G.I. Joe, America's Elite, issue zero. <laughs> So maybe uh, to spell yes. it out a little bit. Yes. So, and the cover to zero says a new beginning and the cover to one says a legend reborn. So uh, yes, I think Casey juggles a lot of characters and places. Well, um, the issue doesn't feel like uh, it's rushing and the issue doesn't feel like Casey is leaving out stuff. Right. There's there's enough of, you know, Snake Eyes gets to do something cool. We check in with Flint, who's having a terrible time and is a changed man. You know, S S Storm Shadow gets to do something uh, contrarian. You know, he, he spooks uh, Joe Colton, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are two moments of exaggeration that in in that uh, John Buscema, how to draw comics the Marvel way vein very much work for comics, but actually take me out of uh, the reading a little bit. And that is on page pages 12 and 13. This is the scene where Snake Eyes uh, takes out some cobras and then Flint uh, takes out a cobra. 
Flint kicks a cobra in the face and then three panels later clocks a cobra in the head with the butt of his weapon. And in both cases, he's hitting a cobra so hard that the fabric of their costume tears. And that's a really cool visual. That's not really what would happen, but okay. And and the Cobra Trooper loses a tooth as well. It's flying through the air as well, which is a very comic booky trope. Yeah, and I think I think that one. I mean, you know, I have never lost a tooth because someone you know punched me or opened a door into my face, but that does happen. Uh, I think there'd be, if you're being technical, I think there'd be blood, but there, you know, there's, there's probably a there's probably a Hasbro note like no blood in this issue. <laughs> Okay, I want to go back a page uh, to this scene with Stalker showing up in the tank. So in addition to his sort of final, like, snarky, like, nudge, nudge to the audience, sometimes I love my job line that I don't love, something something happens exactly one page earlier where he pulls up in this tank and he pops up out of the the canopy. What's it called? Uh, top hatch, of the tank? would you call it? The hatch. Thank you. Although actually, where is that? Oh, okay, it's, it's on the. Okay, I see it. I see it. It's, uh, I see it on the next page. Right, never mind. Um, Stalker pulls up out of the hatch on the his tank, and he talks for a long time, allowing them to shoot at him. Mm-hmm. Right, surprise, fellas! You morons just fell for the old Trojan horse gambit. And yes, peppy dialogue is a hallmark of comic books and fight scenes. But like, this ain't Spider Man. He's not he's not <laughs> quipping because he's a kid who's been bullied and he gets to sort of be free in his costume and punch bad guys. Um, they have machine guns and they want to kill him. And he gives them time to shoot at him. And Stalker is not. Stalker is good at this, right? Like, don't give them that chance. Uh, OK, we've been talking quite a long time. So um, is there anything else that you desperately want to touch on before we sort of wrap up? Yes, I will uh, point out uh, three, four quick things. Bethesda, Maryland. Hey, that's my hometown. That's fun. <laughs> uh, I, li- I lived in Bethesda, Maryland from age zero to 18. Yeah. Uh, number two, uh, the, the remote control that Hawk has in his hand in the hospital room is a very strange looking remote control. Uh, number th- number three, um, when we cut back to Yellowstone, um, under the panel which has the Skyhawks and the Sky Strikers, um, there is a bit of unclear storytelling where Colton is in the panel and he says, "Hmm," but it's not clear what he's doing. He's he's standing or walking, and then the next panel, uh, he and two other characters are in silhouette, and I thought. Oh, did the power go out? Because all the sort of techs around him are sort of reacting to something or, you know, the attack in Chicago or something. And then in the next panel, uh, this is on the bottom of the page, we're over the shoulder from the ceiling or the rafters looking past someone in silhouette. It's Storm Shadow. And Colton's looking back up at us with his arms folded. And I realize, oh, oh, Colton just got to the base. And is walking through it, surveying it. Right. But these three these three panels are are unclear. I, I sort of need Colton to be walking with a clipboard or walking with like 
an assistant behind him with a clipboard. I need Colton to sort of look up and like ask someone a question or like run his finger along an edge and look at the dust, you know, or like he, he has to say something else. That's the silhouette panel of those three characters is confusing. Uh, so this this note, the story beat where Storm Shadow shows up, it's a weird and unwelcome surprise for Colton. Colton has a problem with this sort of X factor on the team. Um, isn't presented in a like clear and satisfying way. I had to like think about these panels. Uh, and then uh, lastly, though I like the idea that in this issue zero, Casey's core team of eight shows hasn't come together yet. And it certainly makes sense that some of the Joes would go to Chicago to help out with this, um, with the with the attack. It does seem a little weird that in this huge area of devastation where we do see uh, rescue workers, and certainly every pair of hands is going to be helpful, there are only three Joes? It just sort of felt like something about it sort of didn't make sense to me, right? It's like... Yes, if if like civilians need help because there's debris and people are injured uh, and buildings have fallen over, absolutely go help. But no, I want the Joes to like get in a plane and go find, you know, Wingfield or like something, you know? Yeah, yeah. I guess, I mean, you know, we're still in setup mode. They don't know. The mystery is, you know, who's done it. And that's, uh, that's, that's what they will need to find out. Next. Right. I mean, and so the, so the contrast, when you turn the page, this is now the, the third to last page. And Scarlet says, it's like a war zone in there. So many people just, is someone actually responsible for this? And I thought, yeah, this, I mean, we're focusing on, on the Joes and we're not seeing dozens and dozens of other emergency workers at the scene helping. But something about this where sort of how Casey is with his, quote, camera focusing in on part of it and not part of it where he's picked only three joes something about it feels a little off for me and it's not it's not a deal breaker it's not terrible but i thought well this is heroic but it sort of isn't what joes do yeah 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 like no they're 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 top secret they they do i think that 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 thought is sort of slightly touched on in a following issue as as well so uh yeah i guess you it is addressed in some part Quote of the week, 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 quote of the week. So in terms of favourite line of dialogue, I had one that jumped out at me, which was that something that the president said in that first scene. There's a reason I've come to you, Joseph. I need a clean slate here. And I just thought it's a little bit of an analogy, isn't it? (laughs) It's a bit of a nail on the head. Oh, yeah. Um, We've got a clean slate, new start, issue zero, new team. And look who they've come to. It's Joe Casey. There's a reason I've come to you, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a a favorite line, but I do think an amazing dramatic line is on the third to last page when shipwreck. I mean, this is the reason why you have the Joes actually there. But my previous point, I think I still stand by shipwrecks looking through some debris and he's holding a smoking or steaming piece of metal and it's got a bit of the American flag on it. And he says, oh, damn, it was one of ours, meaning the satellite that crashed is American. Mm. And so that's a good 
that's a good motivator for the next issue for the whole arc that is you know dramatically chilling without being overstated it's not like they're back at base and duke says you know points to the big computer screen he says i have some intel on the crash in chicago right it's it's very personal how we the reader discover this and it gives shipwreck a little moment to to do something or be something in the story it's um my my last comment is that the uh, the back cover to this comic book is uh an ad for hey there's a there's a little logo on the bottom left licensed by hasbro properties group um the back cover of this comic book from museum replicas and atlanta cutlery you can <laughs> you can order uh snake eyes's sword and storm shadows sword uh this holiday season two of the most popular foes in gi joe history will come together in one of the most anticipated series of collectibles ever offered designed with the cooperation of the gi joe team at hasbro and this is fun but they're also kind of dumb looking i'm sorry um <laughs> it, for what they are right like snake eyes's sword handle is sort of a stylized bird and or panther i can't uh, tell I and, griffin yeah and it's black and storm shadows it looks sort of like a traditional samurai handle except that it's straight and then it has a cobra logo at the end and i feel like this isn't really what these two characters would have for their swords even if you were to do up a little bit of something to do with their backstory or their you know visuals or costumes I sort of smile at and appreciate that these are artists re- uh, artist rendering of sword in production. Each of these is like a, a hand-drawn, like inked and colored pencil drawing of a sword handle. And I, I appreciate sort of anyone in 2005 trying to do G.I. Joe merchandise because Hasbro's still sort of figuring out, you know, what it's doing with G.I. Joe and is maybe giving devils do a little bit of a hard time you know with the comics and uh i don't want to buy gi joe prop swords but anything that helps gi joe get out there <laughs> just uh yeah, just looking at some of the images of these i think just because we're seeing the handles as well without the context of the blades probably uh doesn't help but there we go yes yes you you this this is definitely a case where in the advertising there should be some kind of inset panel where even if they have to draw it, you know, you you should see like a character holding the sword. So you just mm. you get a little feeling of like, cool, yeah, I'm going to get that sword, put it on my mantle and sometimes pick it up. <laughs> but this sort of looks like, like, oh, letter openers or paperweights. Yo, yo, cola, not grape soda. It's yo. Joeage time. Right, yo, Joeage. Shall I go first? Yeah. I liked it. Punchy did what it needed to do, sort of setting out kind of new status quo and establishing a threat and this uh, sort of tantalizing cliffhanger. You know, nothing in the writing sort of standing out as as being off there. The art was really impressive. Just about as good as uh, GI Joe has, has ever looked, I'd say. Yet, yeah, you know, the, particularly the colours as well from Sundaraj really bringing it uh, to life and sort of an, an added layer of sort of texture and depth. 
So happy with the story, happy with the art. I'm going to rank it high because um, I have a feeling that I might not be staying quite so high for the rest of the line. So I'll go eight on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, before I give a number, I just want to check back in with my long comment on how Stefano Caselli draws furrowed and cocked eyebrows. Caselli is welcome to draw more G.I. Joe any day in my book. I'd be so thrilled. Covers, backup stories, whole stories. I'm sure this will not come to pass because he's drawing for Marvel. Um, But I was excited when he was announced. I was excited on this issue and the next issues. And even when his stuff in later issues, I think I remember it was clear he didn't have as much time. It was still good. I I don't know if this is a seven or an eight. It might be a seven because I'm such a jerk. It's still Devil's Due. <laughs> what? Um, that seems and, unreasonable, Tim. Uh, well, I, I can't look at this comic in isolation. It's still part of their publishing history. It's still part of their ongoing story. And, you know, as... <laughs> I really want G.I. Joe comics to be not on glossy paper. I really want them to be written by Larry Hama. You know what? I'll give it. Okay. I'll give it an, I'll give it an eight because right. at 25 cents, <laughs> that buys you a lot of goodwill and, and leeway. And mm. uh, I mean, you know, this was so well-priced. I, I hope, I imagine that back in 2005, a couple people bought, two extra copies and gave them to friends and said, Oh, you got to check this out. It's they're doing it again. It's great. Wow. So that's a high benchmark. They were going, we're going with and sticking to eight. Tim. I think that's, that's certainly your highest uh, that you've given for, for anything on devil's due that we've, uh, we've talked about so far. And I don't think, I don't think, I can't remember ever have seeing a nine from, from you, maybe on a, maybe on a couple of occasions. So we'd have to, We'd have to read some some Marvel issues to get there. <laughs> so uh, yeah, what a high uh, a high watermark to to start at. It can um, only <laughs> it can only go downhill from here. Uh, but that will be fun. So next time on Talking Joe Disavowed, we'll be continuing our look at America's elite era. And um, my proposal, Tim, is that we cover issues one to four which uh, is essentially the first arc um, of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Since we have spent so much time on color and setup and art and picking the writer and picking the artist. Yeah. Good. And then alongside that, of course, we'll be talking about all other sorts of G.I. Joe related matter as uh, we go in parallel. Um, so Tim, where can people find you when you are not talking to me about GI Joe video essays on TV and film at our YouTube channel, atomic Abe productions, my brick and mortar comic book store in Somerville, Massachusetts is hub comics. And I write about GI Joe at a real American book.com. Excellent stuff. Uh, you can find out more about the show at the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that points to those places. So uh, we're on Patreon too, patreon.com slash talkingjoe. So thanks to our backers, Richard, Sam, 
Jay, Bill, Christopher, Justin, Rob, Brian and Shane who are getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. Uh, recently we've had about three or so episodes in the can that those guys have had access to before everybody else. That's exciting. So I think that is us done. But remember that... Nobody Beats Talking Joe, an international podcast! Laters! <laughs>